Yahidne is a Ukrainian village where the Russian army forced over 300 Ukrainians into a school basement and kept them for almost a month. Ten people died from suffocation and lack of food and water. It was just one of Russia's countless war crimes during this war. A group of Dutch writers visited Yahidne in December 2023 as part of a trip organized by PEN-Ukraine with support from the Ukrainian Institute and the Prague Civil Society Center. We organized a discussion with them afterwards to talk about war crimes, compassion and solidarity. You're listening to the Explain Ukraine podcast and it's serious thinking in dark times. Explain Ukraine is a podcast by Ukraine World, a multilingual website about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolonko. I am a Ukrainian philosopher, chief editor of Ukraine World and president of Pan Ukraine. My guests during this conversation are Lisa Veda, Dutch writer of Ukrainian origin, Florian Jacobs, director of the publishing department at the International School of Philosophy, Yaps Holten, Dutch writer and journalist, founder of the charitable organization Defend Ukraine, Manon Uphoff, Dutch author, screenwriter and artist. This conversation took place in Kyiv in December 2023. Let me remind you that Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. Let me also remind you that you can support our work at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. We provide exclusive content for our patrons. You can also support our volunteer trips to the front lines at paypal, ukraine.resisting.gmail.com. You can find these links in the description of this episode. Thank you very much for coming uh, to this event. I'm very happy that we have this event with our wonderful colleagues from the Netherlands. And thank you very much for coming to Ukraine. As we always say, uh, it is always courageous to come to Ukraine uh, during this time and um, during this moment where solidarity with Ukraine is not on the highest level. But I think we will discuss these issues as well. So this is our um, the part of our uh, program Solidarity with Ukraine that we are making Pan Ukraine together with uh, Ukrainian Institute and Prague Civil Society Center. And this event we usually make it um, these English language discussions as part of Ukraine World Club, which I also uh, had. Ukraine World is a website, multilingual website about Ukraine. So I'm very happy to introduce our guests. Uh, I will start with uh, Florian Jacobs, who is a Dutch writer and director of the publishing department of the International School of Philosophy. Um, uh, Florian, thank you so much for being here. And Florian is the guy who made possible the Dutch translation of our book, Ukrainian Histories and Stories, which appeared in 2019 was a collection of essays um, of Ukrainian intellectuals. And the Dutch translation was the first to, to, to be made from, uh, from English. Now we have the Spanish translation. I hope others will come as well. Manon Uphoff, uh, who is a Dutch author, screenwriter, and artist. Welcome. <laughs> Japs Holten, who is also a Dutch writer and journalist and uh, author of the book about his journeys across Ukraine, Three Suitcases of Women's Clothes and a Sniper, and founder of the charitable organization Defend Ukraine. 
And uh, with Yap, we have a, a podcast recently made a few weeks ago, I think one month ago, but published a few weeks ago, and we recorded just in, in, in that room, in a different room. So thank you very much for coming. And Lisa Veda, who is a Dutch writer of Ukrainian origin and author of literary program, screenwriter, and uh, VR director. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Lisa, for also coming. Please welcome. And I'm very, very excited uh, to say that uh, our event is attended by the ambassador, His Excellency Ambassador of the Netherlands to Ukraine, Yanis Demol. Please welcome him as well. It became a tradition that um, ambassadors of uh, different countries come to this place and we are very happy to welcome them. So, um, did I mention everything that I needed, Tanya? Yeah, okay, okay, well, we can start. So, let's start with the, with the discussion. And, and uh, today we went together with you to, uh, to Yahidne. And for those of you who probably don't know, Yahidne is one of those places of the symbols of the um, of Russian cruelty and um, uh, Russian really inhumane invasion of Ukraine. So 380 people were put uh, in the underground in the cellar of the school and kept there for almost a month. And, and frankly speaking, this is, um, this is a horrible experience even to listen about this. But what did you take from it? What is, what, what is, what is something that you, you will take from this meeting to your back home? What will you tell uh, other people and maybe it, it is in which way it transformed uh, your vision of things as well. Let me start with Manon, with you probably. We were, sorry. Yeah. We were uh, talking about it as we were uh, getting here uh, about this, uh, this visit and Ivan who uh, guided us today and uh, told us everything and walked us uh, around uh, this, uh, this building, this basement, where people were kept. And um, we were talking about the difference between uh, a distanced journalistic approach in which you document uh, uh, things and, and, and facts and the um, very impressive um, experience of walking around there um, with the moist air and the cold and this person who has experienced himself what has happened there. Um, and it made us think about how, how, how do you um, create a, a memory um, because uh, uh, um, Tatjana uh, told us that um, and, and also Ivan told us that people don't want to visit this place, the people that were kept there. Um, they uh, um, keep away from it, and there's a tendency to try to forget and move on. And at the same time, it's of extreme importance that a place like this is kept and memorized. So that's one first impression. Thank you. Lisa, maybe yours? <laughs> I'll take this one for now. Um, yeah, 
I've been thinking about this question about how to remember Russian cruelty for a longer time as one of my uncles was murdered in 2015 by separatists in uh, Luhansk. And as a writer, but also as a virtual reality creator, I always look for, and that sounds a bit weird because we're still in the middle of a war, of course, and it feels like we already try to make material out of something that is happening. Um, <coughs> which is a weird position, I think, as an artist. Um, I think it was Kurkov who said, can I already write about something that is still happening? Uh, as many other writers and also historians said that are, that are writing books about this topic right now, um, like Sergi Plochi, for example. Um, but I'm, I think it's really important to, as Manon says, look for a way for people, for example, in the Netherlands to understand that it's not a newspaper war, it's not a social media war, it's an actual physical thing that happens to people on a daily basis. And if you can get an audience to physically have some remembrance of it instead of reading a book, putting it aside when you finish it, and getting the next book that is, you know, next to your bed, and it maybe it's fucking Sally Rooney or something. Uh, she's also nice, but... Um, oh, we make a lot of jokes in Dutch. So, so you know... We have lo lots of jokes in Ukraine. Okay, so good, yeah. Da dark <laughs> humor, people. black humor is welcome. We'll make it more dark for you then today. Um, I think that's really important, and I've been trying to do this in my work, but it gets more and more important to do so, I guess. Florian, um, I, would, I would ask you to uh, think, because Europe, for us, for Ukrainians, and Netherlands, and Denmark, and I don't know, Germany, is a place where the, the level of violence is radically reduced. So there is much less violence as, um, as for example, in other parts of the world. And for, I think one of the uh, reasons why Ukrainians want so much to join Europe is not about single market or whatever, but that they feel that there is an um, organization, a, a, a place, a space where there is a lesser violence than we're accustomed to. And suddenly, we were in Yahidna and we, we heard these stories that each person had one and uh, just a half of square meters for herself or himself. You you couldn't really walk for one month. You couldn't you couldn't really lie down on a on a bed. You were sitting on the chair for one month without real food, without real water, and uh, you could be shot at any moment. So we see not only violence, which obviously is present in the war. But we we see senseless violence. We we see violence which doesn't make sense. What what does it make you think as a writer, but also as a philosopher? So um, first of all, I'd like to say something about Europe, where we start with, um, and to quote Timothy Gardnesh, English historian who also visited Ukraine and you spoke with. Um, he wrote in one of his books that Europe is the promise of peace. So the entire project of Europe, of European Union, is the project of peace that we've seen develop ever since the European Union started back in the 20th century, long ago. 
Um, so that's one. Then secondly, as a philosopher, one tends to think about, one is actually thinking about thought, about one is trying to clarify thought, the concepts that we use to make sense of our lives. And a concept that philosophers find it very hard to deal with is the concept of evil, because in a way it's unthinkable. Um, philosophers like to think about morality, what's good or what's bad, but not what's evil. And what I'll definitely take with me from the visit that we had today is that the unthinkable actually happened. So one cannot philosophize in a way. One has to describe it. One has to make sure that one describes it in such a way that everybody else has a sense of this evil. And that means probably going beyond philosophy, beyond the concepts that we know, but sticking to the actual facts, no matter how difficult they are to portray. I think that's a good and important point. And it's true that it is difficult for us Ukrainians to talk about this in, in, uh, in, in, in your countries. And I understand why, because there is a lot of way of thinking, and good way of thinking, which kind of a relativizes this question, which says, okay, you, you cannot name everything that you don't like evil, right? And sometimes what you call evil, what we call evil is just different from you. And all the 20th century, the whole 20th century, uh, through many different philosophers, uh, were done, I don't know, from uh, Bergson to Habermas and Derrida <coughs> and others, who were down to, okay, how to deconstruct this concept of evil. But suddenly, you, you, you face the situation when you understand that evil exists and, and it is here, like killing civilians for no purpose, just for fun sometimes, uh, doing this senseless cruelty, putting almost <coughs> 400 people for one month into a cellar without any good reason. Well, how, how else can we find a name for it, right? But let me address Yap and ask you, Mm, we already talked about this um, in our podcasts, and uh, you are a person who, who is a writer, but also who became an activist. So you regularly are in Ukraine. You bring in lots of cars for the Ukrainian military, um, and you told me that there is only one way to, you know, to fight against this evil is to help the Ukrainian army. But these journeys give something to you as well. What do you feel, what, what your colleagues feel uh, when they come to Ukraine? Do they come only from the you know, feeling of empathy, sympathy, willingness to help? Or, or you're coming also to get some experience that you don't have? Yeah, well, I think it's a, a mix of many things. One very simple thing is adventure. It, it, that's, that's. But... Um, I think what what it gives is is first the the feeling that you do something useful, and um, the other thing is what I see that with with everybody because it's a lot of people uh, my age. I mean, not not very young people, but uh, old guys um, who were all uh, raised in a time when Russia was still a danger uh, for Europe. Um, and the last 30 years, we forgot this, that, that we thought we had a, a false feeling of, of safety. 
And um, I think all the people who come also realize very well that how this is existential danger in the end also for us. And so there, there's a huge drive to, to, to come and help. And, um, and I think we, we come also uh, with, with uh, a few writers. And I think what Lisa is saying, I think one of the things that we also all have to do is, is to, the, the evil that you portray, uh, uh, to, to try to, to tell about it in a way that you can digest it. I think that is the, the, the role of, of writers and artists, I think, to to bring it, to bring the evil for us, I think we have to bring the evil to people in, in Western Europe who who cannot imagine that. It's so far away from, from how we live in the Netherlands. It's people cannot imagine. I I took a picture in the basement today in uh, Yahitna and I sent it to to uh, to my family and and they they they, they it I mean it is it it is so so somber <laughs> you you can you cannot uh, imagine one thing that that we Ukrainians I think understand uh, while going to the places like Yahidne is that this already happened with us before so uh, Florian uh, talks about evil and uh, we keep talking about the repetitive evil, the evil that comes back. And for example, if you read uh, some of the classics of the Ukrainian literature, I, al I always quote, quote the, the uh, Garden of Geth Gethsemane uh, of Ivan Bahriany, uh, which is, uh, of course, the reference to the, to the Jesus Christ experience in the Evangelist. Uh, but uh, there is a, a moment it's actually a novel about Gulag, about concentration camp, which, pu which was published, written and published well before Solzhenitsyn. So it was published in the 50s. But one of the images is that when the key character is brought to prison and he is brought to the single cell of very, very, you know, very tight, where one person is supposed to be, and he, when he was put to this cell, is actually understand that there are 20 something people there. And people were sitting uh, in the same way as we were shown today at Yahidna. So body to body with no real capacity to move. They were actually able to lie down, but in a way that all the bodies were put together. So if you want to turn from one side to another side, everybody should turn. But one also element very important is that uh, he says that when a person dies in this cell, the, the, guard, the, the, the guardians will not let the body to be taken away for one day. And this is exactly what we heard today in Yahidne, that 10 people who have died out of suffocation, lack of air, out of hunger, and they were lying there for Ivan told us one, one of them for one day, and kids were playing around him. So my question is, and it will be also kind of a philosophical question maybe to Florian to continue this. Europe is based upon the idea uh, of this promise of peace and promise of the good, but also upon an idea that evil has been overcome. 
and this major evil is the Nazism and the Holocaust. And it's a horrible thing, but it is, has been overcome and Europe is built upon the idea that we finally overcome the biggest evil and then we will try to figure out with the smallest evil, smaller evils. And suddenly there is this thing that we understand that evil is not overcome and it's coming back. And our, I think, Ukrainian experience, Eastern European experience is something that, you know, says to Europeans, no, don't be too naive. Because we have this order, and, and this war is also one of the reasons of that, is that this evil that we already described, that Bahriani described in the 50s, was never condemned, was never charged. What do you think? Well, first of all, I could maybe mm, posit the assumption there that totalitarianism lacks imagination. So, who wants to do evil, does evil in very similar ways. They kind of look at the past and they, they do it again. So the idea of never again, that indeed this uh, foundation of modern Germany, in many ways, this modern German education, and as a result of that also modern Europe, it's something that we have to learn. And for instance, when you look at the Netherlands, that hasn't known a war on its own territory since 1945, which no one remembers, we've forgotten what it is like. Um, and that makes it very difficult to convey this experience of evil. Um, there's a complacency in that. So what I say to people in the Netherlands is listen to Eastern Europe listen to the countries that border Russia, there, that you can learn from. They know what's happening. They know what's actually the case. And we shouldn't be delusional. Yeah. Um, it's going to be tough to convey this message, but we've got to try it. And um, philosophizing about evil is one thing, but yeah, you need to fight it with everything that you've got. And that's what Ukraine is teaching Europe. I'll, I'll keep this for uh, yeah. this time, no. Yeah? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, did any one of you read uh, The Eight Life for Brioka by Nino Haratishvili? Anyone knows Nino Haratishvili? One person, okay, that's Don't good. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Uh, I knew how to say good in Georgian, but I forgot. Um, uh, this is a history, and please correct me if I, I uh, uh, tell it wrong, about eight uh, generations of women in Georgia. And you see the repetition of repression, of evil, um, uh, in eight generations of women, I think from the beginning of the 20th century until now. And this was a great hit in the Netherlands. This was a bestseller in the Netherlands and in Germany. This, uh, uh, Nino Haratishvili writes in German and is originally from Georgia. And um, for me, having a similar family history in Ukraine, this was the first time that I read a book like, uh, of course there are other books, but this was the first time I read such a book in the Netherlands that was so popular. But what happened when I talked with other Dutch readers, friends of mine, people I know who read a lot of books, who are 
call themselves intellectuals. I'm not really interested in that term, but okay. Um, a lot of them said this cannot be true. It, it's impossible that so many generations suffer. How can it be? And I think that's really problematic because that means that you really don't understand that in a very big part of Europe, a lot of countries have had this constant suffering upon suffering upon suffering, um, which we have a complete blind spot from. Um, there's this writer, Sasha Mariana Salzman. She works in Germany, but she has Ukrainian heritage also. She, and I think at some point she's right. She said that Western Europe stops at Brandenburg, but that's really in Germany. That's just a bit off to, to the east. Um, in the woods, you still have Soviet buildings, actually, that they never took away. And I think, I don't have a, I don't think this is an answer to your question, but I've, I see, I've been talking about my Ukrainian heritage for 12 years and nobody knows. So where do I start, do we start in order to um, inhale, how do I say it? How can we catch up? Because this catching up is, as you said, this book was in the 50s. You need to catch up 70 years. Um, I, yeah, well, I don't know how to do it. Yeah, just get angry and tell more people. And I gift everyone the book from Haratishvili, so, but it's expensive. And I'm a poor writer, so it's difficult. But, but I, I think not everything is so um, pessimistic. Because um, what, what you say also, I think uh, Ukraine shows Europe uh, in some way the way uh, how to fight. Uh, evil and I think what I see in the Netherlands there is such a um, willingness uh, to help Ukraine it is uh, you know, are also people here who do a lot and um, I think that in the Netherlands I've, I feel many people will always help, want to help and, and I am convinced that that is an um, and I think your president was also very good in that, in showing the world what happened in Bucha and in Irpin and in Izium, because it indeed is of a kind of evil that is above the bourgeois life of everybody in the West. And um, but I think, and and I think also for for us and for all the writers, there is a, a big task to to try to convey that debt to, to, to the West and, and wake, wake, the, wake up the people. And, and I thought, also going back to Yahidne today, what made a big impression on me was on every door was written how many children and how many uh, adults were kept in a room. And you could not imagine like nine and 28 and then a space this small and um, and the, the complete mess and I, I for me that was very depressing the, the complete mess what everywhere where the the Russian army comes along what they leave behind yes uh, so I'm, I'm listening to what my co-travelers are saying and thinking um, also about this visit today. 
what usually happens when you come in contact with clear evil, and we came in contact with that today, is that it's you, you tend to close off. And what happens right now in many countries, uh, the Netherlands included, that it's difficult. It's difficult to attach yourself and to become, um, how do you, to connect yourself to the evil that is happening here right now. It's difficult to watch it. And uh, um, it happens that people try to forget. They want to forget that these things are happening. And they want to forget that these things are real. Because it's, it's, uh, um, it causes anxiety. And it um, also challenges our own ideas about the fragility of peace and the fragility of our own democracy, for example, and for the great democracies in the world. We, it can, we see that happening, that these are fragile institutions or concepts, and we need to take care of them. Um, and I'm always thinking, how can, you, how can you make people stay sensitive about what is really happening somewhere to real human beings and today i i we saw the horror we saw the bleakness the banality of the dirt but also all these colorful children's drawings on the wall of flowers of apples uh, they they tried to to create beauty and they created something that the Russian soldiers um, almost are jealous about, uh, that there is something in this fragility that you can't destroy. You can, you can destroy the human beings, and you can destroy individual lives, but you can't destroy this fragile strength. And I like, as a writer, I would like to transport that message. Look, it's something beautiful, even there. People, children try to create beauty and look at that. And, and that's easy to look at. That's not difficult. Thank you for raising this, Manon, because uh, the word fragility is very important for us, I think. Uh, this year, uh, Frankfurt Buchmesse program, <coughs> Ukrainian program, had this word in its title fragility of existence <coughs> and um, and the beauty because we travel a lot across Ukraine and every every time we see like people for example raising flowers uh, around the destroyed houses or people we went to Kherson recently to, to a really very tough place the district very close to the Dnipro River, it means very close to the Russians, that district which was covered with water after the explosion of the Kakhovka Dam. And we saw a woman which is taking care of 99-year-old woman who is lying on her bed somewhere in, in, in the, and she was just uh, trying to clean the street, taking, taking the, the garbage out of the street. And she was very smiling and also, a person thinking about beauty and order and humaneness in a situation when there is, you know, you can be shot uh, at any moment, actually. 
And the, the drawings, I will show you next time, probably afterwards, the drawings that Russian soldiers leave in, in, in places like Izum. And you, this is also expression of this horrible, so the, the lack even of this feeling of beauty, you know, it's, it's just the horror of drawings. But let me ask maybe Manon and, and Lisa, let's start with you, because this empathy, uh, I think that you mentioned is very important. And frankly speaking, every time we see people like you coming to us, it's it's a great thing because this means that this line of empathy, compassion is going going beyond. And you, you should be really somebody, you know, with a big heart to have this compassion and to come to Ukraine and to help. But this Ivan today, right? An ordinary guy, but remember when he always time in his he he was speaking, his eyes were as if feel feel felt uh, filled with uh, with some tears or liquid, uh, you know, some lake. Let's say it was full uh, <laughs> eyes full with 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 some lake. Let's let's call it like this metaphorically because it was not tears but something. And the way he he was talking about this, so it's not a, a, a thinking that says, okay, I will describe these objects. He is he was inside, and uh, all the time that he's telling this story, he's thinking about it and feeling it again and again. And I do think that this is also a cha challenge for the whole civilization: this compassion, how you can overcome today's reality where everything for you is just an object on your screen and you don't really have compassion to something that you have see you see on your screen and i think this is also very important so are we come because we are living in a very cynical age and uh, are we really have a chance to overcome this cynicism through at least going to such places talking to such people talking about their stories um I think you, you yourself put it in the best possible way. I was deeply impressed, all of us who were deeply impressed with um, what Ivan told us, but also the way he told us and what he is doing there. Because he is collecting the collective memory and he is gardening it like a gardener. He is keeping those memories and he is doing it with such a dignity and so humble. And I wish I uh, would know a way to to transport uh, to transport not only that experience but such human beings because they are the most important human beings in in a society. These people that keep the memory alive, that are humble in their stories, um, and and uh, they tell them and they listen, he uh, quiet, uh, um, he answered all our questions, some of which probably were very stupid or maybe even insulting, you don't know, sometimes you say something terribly uh, stupid and he, uh, but he, then he doesn't hear you and uh, in a very dignified way. So I wish we could collect um, um, the character <laughs> uh, of people uh, like that and say, look, this is, this is what we should do. This is what we should learn. And this is, these are the people that we uh, uh, should listen to. Okay, thank you. Um, 
it had made me also think of something else that's maybe somewhere connected to it. When I was a young child, my parents took me to the ghetto of Krakow. And um, there was one big building, and inside were children's drawings, and I was about 12 or something. Um, and it was the first time that I connected, because they looked exactly the same as when I drew, drew stuff at home when I was young. So there's also this, uh, it transcends time, this, uh, it's not naivete, but it's this power to still have the ability to create this color and draw a sky, for example, with a sun and a tree. And a, and we saw a lot of cats also still. In uh, today in Yahidne, we saw a cat called Marquise. Um, uh, yes, the drawing on the wall. Um, but I think, uh, yes, as Yap says, a lot of people are helping in the Netherlands. That is very true. But what I sometimes miss in um, the reaction is that there's this I wonder if we uh, are reality-proof enough um, in, for example, the Netherlands. Because reality-proof doesn't only mean that you need to be able to see the darkness, but the darker it gets, the lighter it gets at the other side. Because the whole spectrum, it grows. And it means that life is way deeper. And it hurts a lot more, but it also gives a lot more at the other side. Um, that, that sounds a bit hippie of me, but um, I don't mean it like that, but I've, I, I've, I'm, I'm I've been thinking about that a lot since the 24th of uh, February 2022, how, how, you, how you can get more people to get to that point, to be able and willing to not go to a row cycle spinning class. We have this weird stuff in the Netherlands that you cycle for an hour and somebody screams at you that you can get happiness by cycling for an hour. Um, uh, why why should you go to row cycle if you can also see 20 days in Mariupol and then maybe have a very good coffee and combine those two instead of shutting off because I think that happens a lot. Um, I totally diverted from the question. But that's fine, because um, I think you're right in a way that actually the war takes you away from this medium experience. Like, and it, go, it, it, it takes you to the extremes. And this extreme is extreme pain, but also extreme love sometimes. So, so the, the, the closer you are to death, sometimes the closer you are also to life because you feel this life maybe in, in a very, very, very acute, sharp form. And this maybe explains why so many people we meet in a very difficult places, um, like in Kherson or, or destroyed villages around it or in the East. They're very, you know, very often smiling and very often energetic. And when we ask them, so you're living in a very harsh conditions. Your house is destroyed, and uh, you don't have a home. Why are you smiling? Why are you still? They say, okay, but we live through the, the the most horrible point of our life already, and 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 the way that we are happy that we are alive. 
And remember, Ivan said today that yeah, that uh, every every half an hour, he was saying to himself, "I'm happy that I'm alive." But let me. Um, our topic is about Ukraine and Europe, and uh, we need maybe to pass to this more geopolitical questions. But let me ask: when we when we think about future of Europe, <laughs> we we think about you know GDP unemployment, um, economics, and all these very important things. But let me ask a different thing, and it's, it's already appeared in our conversation. The first thing is whether we have a chance, we both, you Western Europeans, us Ukrainians, Eastern Europeans, and to break away with this epoch of cynicism, which I think we, we were and we still are, in the past decades, because when you watch TV, all these TV shows, it's it's really cynical, and people are so happy to be cynical, right? Whether we we have a chance to move away from it to 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 a new sincerity, a new compassion, a new empathy, and the second thing, we, coming back to what Florian said, is Europe ready to fight? Is Europe ready to to feel this war as as a common war? Because when I come to Western European countries, frankly speaking, I have a double feeling. The first feeling is that, yeah, there are so many people who have compassion, who have sympathy, solidarity, but then it stops a certain point. And when you say, okay, it's a common war, we need to engage, Ukraine will not survive without you, they're shocked. They're shocked and they start thinking, do you want to drag us into a war? No, we don't want it. So what do you think? What's the question? Are we going, is, is Europe ready to fight and are we going from this cynicism to, uh, to, to more compassion and empathy? It was a very sobering uh, uh, enquête, how do you call it? Um, uh, poll. Somebody sent it me last night, and it was like in the Netherlands, only 15% of the people are willing to fight. So, but, um, yeah, for their own country. But, um, so I, I think we, we are in some way very spoiled, uh, but yeah, I, I, it, it's hard to say. What, what anyway, what I uh, feel, and Going back on your very first question, I'm, I'm very much somebody of l'esprit d'escalier, so I only, two hours later, I know the answer to a question. Um, but one of the things that I also experience coming here all the time is the, um, it's great to help. It's, it's, it's great. <laughs> and um, it's, it's great how, how there's this whole army of uh, vrijwilligers. I always forget the word vrijwilligers. Volunteers. Volunteers. And, um, and I see, at least, because we bring, uh, we, we come with convoys of cars and we come then with a lot of guys. And for most of them, it's the first time they arrive in uh, Ukraine during, uh, after the invasion. And all of them become like ambassadors for Ukraine. So, it, in a small way, it is a, it's a great, great thing to, <laughs> to wake people up, 
but and I think that is a very difficult part to really wake up and really realize what is happening and what the Russians are doing, and and that is above imagination of most people. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, but. Yeah. Sorry, I, I'm I'm deep I'm deeply pessimistic uh, in the answer to your question because sadly I think Western European uh, countries as a, as a, some kind of unity are um, maybe not even cynical but they are um, sleepy and lazy. Uh, and I don't, f uh, it's my, my personal opinion, I don't know what these countries, the Netherlands included, uh, need to wake up and to see reality. And I think that it needs to get much and much worse and that we really our, ourselves uh, need to, to, to feel the pain of a changing reality before we are willing to, uh, to see uh, a war like this war as our war. It's my personal opinion. I wish it wasn't so. Um, I don't want to compare all the time, but in 1992, my husband, he fled to the Netherlands from Yugoslavia, who was at, uh, a civil war at that time. Uh, that was almost 30 years ago, and I am so totally shocked to see um, the similarities in uh, destruction, um, but also the... Um, uh, the the um, how do you say the repetition in the reaction uh, back then it was not our war we are saddened by it it's horrible how can this happen it's so close by it was never more after the second war how is this possible we deeply feel with everyone and then after a while there is this tendency to say it's your war it's not ours. And it, it happens over and over again. Uh, and I, I don't know how to change that. But isn't it changing? Uh, maybe very slow, um, but still changing. Because I remember, well, I remember discussions with the European Union about this association agreement, about this visa-free, etc. Of course, there is, you know, very tragic events, very painful events, but now we are we're in a different modus of, of, of talk, of conversation. We're talking about membership right now. The assistance is much bigger. The European Commission uh, uh, president is wearing blue, blue and yellow dresses. But I in the Netherlands, uh, is, it f is it still because we see on the what, what previous governments was doing and it was on the front line, on the how to say it, one of the leaders of this idea of helping Ukraine, right? We know that uh, you have the, you had the election and you had Mr. Wilders who is probably putting question marks on this. But, um, but isn't it like two step forward, one step back? 
or or you you keep your because i mean it's it's very 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 sad if you bring pessimism here mm. because <laughs> yeah uh, no no it's we need to be realistic of course florian what do you think yeah i'd like to be more optimistic if i may so first of all about cynicism the antidote to cynicism is attentiveness so look around you look at the details they make you less cynic we see Ukraine these days, we see the colors everywhere, on the buildings, in the drawings. We meet wonderful people. This makes you not a cynic, it makes you the opposite of a cynic. It makes you someone who wants to engage, who feels empowered to be engaged. So this is one. Then, um, about whether Europe, bless you, whether Europe is ready to fight. A few days ago, Kaya Kallas, Estonian Prime Minister, she received a prize in Hamburg, gave a very good speech, in which she lined out how Europe will beat Russia. Because we are upgrading, we are more engaged, we will have to be more engaged, and we will help you. And we will beat Russia. Simple. I know it's not simple, but it's easy to say that, but at least to believe in it. One has to believe in it. And then about the Netherlands and our recent elections. Yeah. Um, so I'm not a representative of the Dutch government, which makes it yeah, <laughs> which makes it easier for me to say something. Um, but what I do know is that although Wilders was chosen, he didn't get a large majority. He is currently trying to make a coalition. He might very well fail at that, for as long as he is not getting a new coalition. We still have a current prime minister who's totally pro-Ukraine, Mark Rutte. Then, the majority of Dutch parliament, even after these elections, is still in favor of supporting Ukraine. We're talking a majority of 70%. And the budget for next year is already set. So what has been promised to you will come to you. 2024, you've got the Netherlands on your side. This much is clear. All the rest, we'll have to wait and see. But the Netherlands is on your side. Thank you. Applause, applause. <laughs> and maybe a last question. Uh, and, and then we, uh, we will address the audience. I'm sure there are many, many comments. Ukraine is trying to join Europe. But when Ukrainians are thinking about Europe, we are primarily thinking about security. We're not thinking about visa-free regime, we're not thinking about freedom of movement, we're not thinking about common market, uh, standardized cucumbers or whatever else, right? We're thinking about security, which is a very strange thing for Europeans because every time you're in Brussels, you're told by European Commission or European Parliament deputies or European Commission officials saying, EU is not a security organization, to which we are saying, aren't the same countries, more or less, that are in the EU are in NATO as well? <laughs> Do you have military budgets there? But th the question is really serious, because if Ukraine sees that its accession to U European Union, which is, we know, very complicated, now we have problems with Hungary and all the rest, but it's a primarily a question of security, then there is a, a question for European Union as well. 
will it change in a way not just to be a single market, but also to be a political union or security union, which is very much discussed in the in the European Union. And uh, for example, when I'm in France, my friend Tornike is here. He is, you know, in in France much more often than me. But I'm saying that look, if you really want this, how how Macron is saying uh, autonomy, strategic no strategic autonomy. If you really want to do that, that's your chance. This is precisely your chance to build a European army, to build European security. Because let's make an intellectual game. Trump is elected as president of the United States. Very, very plausible. He says, goodbye NATO. I'm not interested. What will Europe do if umbrella, United States umbrella goes away? Now everybody is sitting in and asking what is happening in the American Congress. But it's much difficult, more difficult in the United States to persuade people that they should be care about Ukraine than in Europe because this war is in Europe. So what do you think? Do you think that this process is also going to change the way how European Union is looking on itself? Yeah, I think so. Uh, well, I, I think it, it would be great if uh, Ukraine would join NATO, but uh, I think it's much more important at this moment than the European Union. But um, yeah, I would happily uh, change Hungary for Ukraine as a member, and um, I live in Hungary, but, um, but I will think... We'll give you Ukrainian citizenship. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I think clearly the future is that, that, that uh, Europe has to become, uh, in, have, a, have their own defense and everything. But what I see with our, because we as a foundation... Uh, concentrate on uh, helping your army, nothing else. And um, we have a big problem because we have to be very careful with all the banks because they, they can easily stop or, and throw us out. So we, we always only do reconnaissance drones. We always have to be absolutely careful. And it's a huge problem that in the Netherlands, and I don't know if that's a European problem, but uh, banks and also pension funds don't want to have anything to do with defense industry. And that's for that reason we cannot build a defense industry now in Europe. And, and that is quite basic. That's why we, there's no ammunition. And uh, so there, these are all kinds of rules that you, Europe invented. And, and so we, Europe, the West, is quite uh, in, in, the inst, in, in this laws, it, 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 it installs something very pacifistic. And, and that, that will be a very slow process to get out, I think, because you have to change laws. And, and uh, the, it, it is very practical. You need the economy to, to build <laughs> the industry to, to have weapons. And now nobody wants to, to be involved. And I think that's a huge problem. But, yeah. um. I don't know what to say if Trump gets <laughs> elected or uh, when. 
uh, Trump gets re-elected. I, I think what what is happening right now. I was before I was uh, terribly pessimistic, and I'm so sorry. Uh, I can't I can't help it. But um, I think there is a small way out, and that is the necessity for Europe to redefine itself uh, in in uh, a, as a Europe as a union, and in that process of redefining itself. Uh, wh which is necessary if America gets that crazy yellow idiot again. Uh, we need we need to to disconnect. We really need to disconnect from America because that it is they are on themselves then for a while and to redefine what it means to be a European Union, to redefine what is NATO, and to redefine. Uh, um, uh, questions like wh uh, what are we going to do with the European army? Uh, 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 will we ever uh, uh, create uh, uh, something like that? So there, there is the um, uh, uh, small light uh, in the tunnel that it will become a necessity for Europe to do so. I, I also want to add one small light and then I give the microphone to one of you. I spoke three days ago with somebody who was very good informed. And he said that they also, it could be possible that Trump is elected and because he wants to see himself very much as a winner and a deal maker, that he would do something very un, uh, unexpected and close, for instance, the, the, the sky above uh, Ukraine and even go in uh, with with uh, uh, military, so it could be that that Trump is doing something that we don't expect at all from him. So there is there could be light. Yeah, but we ca we can't base our future on 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 the idea. Okay, uh, but actually actually it's a very Ukrainian thing. So hope in the unexpected. <laughs> so we kind of just need more narcissists to get power. I think that's a very bad idea, but I don't have anything more to add, but I think um, because I'm not really, I do geopolitics, but I think it's quite difficult and I like the human part of it. But what I think is that if you talk about changing the attitude of Europe or shaping Europe, the only country you want to have it totally in is Ukraine because um, traveling back and forth, for many years, uh, having Dutch people meet Ukrainian people, the only thing the Dutch uh, people my age, I'm 34, said is like, how can they be so politically involved all the time? Are they not tired? Why are they so active? Why are they so um, involved? And I think we need it uh, as European Union. We need it in order to learn uh, and in order to understand that you're really standing for something is really, really important. Maybe that's a bit naive, but I think that's uh, something we're lacking a lot. Yes, we, we just have good Taiwanese processors uh, in our minds. Sorry, bad joke. Uh, guys, I, I invite the audience to ask questions or comments. Hello. Oh, well, this will take a few minutes. <laughs> uh, my name is Elena. I have a question about Russia's influence on Netherlands' educational system, because I had a situation uh, some time ago, ago an acquaintance of mine 
uh, was in Netherlands, and she sent me some pictures from textbooks from basic educational general system, HAVO, H-A-V-O, yeah. In the section called The World After Cold War, there is a paragraph, Conflict in Crimea. The occupation of Crimea of 2014 is described that, that uh, there is a conflict led by pro-Russian locals who dreamt about becoming Russian since 1991, which is a lie. Also, this textbook tells teens in Netherlands that pro-Russian civilians in the eastern Ukraine willingly participated in the referendum to join Russia, which is also a lie. And uh, the same book uh, pictures that uh, Boeing MH17 tragedy was described as something without responsibility of Russia. That's already like a bouquet of Russian myths. We Ukrainians are trying to debunk like every day. So my question is, is there any literary unions or organizations like PAN who can highlight this nonsense and, uh, you know, to make sure like Russian influence is in involved in educational system because uh, these minds of teens from Europe, I mean, it's already fed with Russian propaganda. Yeah, that's it. Thank you. <laughs> well, we, we can and we will. Um, so I'd like to get the contact information of the book you're showing. I'll get in touch with the publisher. Yeah, I mean, let's get going. More questions, remarks? Yanis, no? Okay. Hello, thank you for the wonderful speech today. Uh, I'm Crimean Tatar. I'm uh, a future book publisher for Crimean Tatar literature. And we already talked about this issue of uh, European people being disconnected from Ukrainian reality and on a daily basis as Crimean Tatar and uh, I'm trying to build like the bridges between Ukraine and Crimean Tatars to have this connection and communication despite of the occupation on the daily basis. Uh, what do you think might be the ways for Europeans to feel more empathetic to Ukrainians? Because basically when you're in Europe and you're telling that you're Ukrainian, everyone would be, yes, of course, we are so sorry of what's going on and what's happening with you, but they will take like two minutes to switch to another topic like nothing is happening. So we talked about this before, but like, are there probably a ways of influence about like soft communication that will be a long-term connection with European Union and European people in this matter? Thank you. I will try um, through art. I think that's a good beginning. Um, but with the... Yeah, I actually don't have an answer, I guess, because this, uh, it's what Manon was also talking about. It's this very fast way, because I was joking about my Ukrainian friends coming to the Netherlands and Dutch people asking, like, why are they so interested in politics? Um, uh, but I've, it, it takes 
a person like Yap to bring a convoy of men, mostly men. I want to write with the next convoy because you need more women. This is terrible. Um, bringing cars to Ukraine, coming back, and then being able to tell the story. But that's only a little bit. You know, they can tell uh, a bit about what they experienced, uh, about uh, the Ukrainian attitude. In my novel, I wrote about the Crimean Tatars and how they were deported. Uh, luckily, it became a bestseller, so 70,000 people read about it. Um, but it's really hard because you need this uh, repetition. And I think that's a really a big problem. Um, uh, for example, it's the same with what you were asking about. The word conflict, you hear it so much in the Netherlands. They kept repeating the word conflict over and over and over again while we knew it was Russian-backed separate, separatists. This, it, it became longer and longer, the sentences and the words they used uh, in order to not talk about the world war, for example. Um, and it's a linguistic thing also. We need to repeat and repeat and repeat to people um, and tell them the stories because it's not even in the common memory of the Dutch history, it's not in the books. I was never taught about Ukraine, um, and I'm from, uh, let's say, 1989. Um, uh, I only know about Ukraine because I have family from there. Uh, so it's also this blind spot problem that you have, and this I think there's this weird empathy thing of not really knowing how to react, maybe. Um, and I don't know how to solve it, except that we as a group, for example, can keep talking about Ukraine as much as we can, and about Crimea, and about how complex the situation is in order to um, have people understand. But you need this, you need to at least tell people three times and give examples and give more examples. And uh, it's also a, a, a time thing, I guess. Um, also through through uh, a culture through through art through music through film you can transport something and show uh, uh, people look this was made by people <laughs> who live over there and these are these people they created these things um, uh, and this afternoon we saw I, I, I forgot the name of the of the uh, I'm so sorry I forgot the name of the museum but the uh, uh, um, beautiful uh, photographs that were made of the empty museum where all the items are now taken uh, uh, away and sent away to protect them and this is uh, for example an exhibition that is very easy to transport to to the Netherlands and then you bring something there that can slowly slowly change something in in the mindset and and put something in in uh, in the memory that is a new story uh, but it takes time it's not enough to to um, yeah to have a news item about it you have to really be willing to invest in it for a very long time and to change these relationships and to change the, the, the memory and the narratives that have already been made and that sometimes people are very attached to because it's difficult, the world is difficult, so many countries, I can't remember them all. Uh, and so it takes time. And also maybe 
it helps when we give people a little bit of time and don't become too angry. When I recall the uh, first time the Yugoslavian war, I didn't, I didn't know anything. I didn't know anything. It took me years to understand. And I'm so happy that I invested these years. But I'm also happy that people gave me this time and corrected me when I was wrong. And just simply retold and listen, you uh, didn't remember it well, you learned something wrong, this is not a fact. Uh, and that, that helped. And that's a very simple thing. I think uh, Dutch newspapers are actually very good. And uh, we, I mean, concerning Ukraine, because there are a lot of people who re all the time go here and, and write really good, really good articles and very uh, focusing on human stories. And that, that yeah, brings the message very clearly home. So I think that's one of the reasons why, why in the Netherlands the support is quite big. Uh, and so, so I think that's a very simple thing. But it's, it's amazing. I was in a, in a discussion like this in Groningen, and there was a man who was the, the kind of famous historian, and he had this historical book published by Van Oorschot about Ukraine, and it was, I could, sitting with him, already find so many kind of, it was the Russian narrative actually in this book, and it's a very good publishing house. And, and so I, and for me, speaking for myself, I didn't know anything about Ukraine. I had been here two times before the invasion. And I think now the whole world knows Ukraine. And, and we learn more and more about Ukraine. So it, I think we, we also need to give, have time. And uh, I, I'm, I'm quite positive about everything. Thank you. More questions? Thank you, Olodi. I have a um, I have a comment and then a question for Dutch friends. Uh, so, Olodi said I'm Georgian. I was born in Georgia, but I live in France for more than 30 years, and I also lived a little bit in Germany last two years. So, I'm observing the political lives in these countries. And your question about pessimism or optimism? Yeah, one can be more optimistic today than 10 years ago. I remember when in 2014. Uh, when Crimea was annexed, there was a kind of wake up, but it was very short, nothing was done. Uh, we saw um, Nord Stream 2 after Crimea. Um, then was uh, 2022, and today, really, the people, like mainstream in Europe, in France and Germany, people are saying the things that I was telling them 10 years ago, and I was considered as a crazy. You, you were bloody, you're Georgian, so you are not reasonable, you are, because you hate Russians, that's why you're saying these things. They exactly say exa exactly the same thing. Sometimes they are even more radical. I, when I'm looking at Macron sometimes, it, after, especially after Bratislava uh, speech he made, I said, no, he's the same guy who was in 2018 talking about you guys. You are, he was pointing at his own diplomat, saying that you are the deep state, you don't want us to be friends with Russia. So now he's the number one against Russia. So I'm happy, I'm happy with that. But again, I think it's not enough. So I, I agree with you, there are steps, significant steps forward, but it's really not enough. And it's not enough because um, 
several reasons. And one of the reasons is that we have in Europe, I mean, our political class is really poor. I mean, intellectually and morally poor. And our democracy, and I'm always comparing to what happened in t during the Second World War, and I'm also quite surprised why in Second World War, it could be different, you know? The Nazis were winning the war. The whole Europe was either pro-Nazi or under the Nazis. So there were some crazy individuals like Winston Churchill or De Gaulle or a few others. And then the Americans came. They were isolationist before they came back. So I don't want to be very, uh, but it's, it's happened for some minor reasons sometimes. So today, I think it's very fragile because we have politicians who don't really understand why should we help Ukraine. They don't have intellectual capacity to explain to the, to the people. That's why most of people they don't understand why we should pay billions and billions and billions, and so they are afraid losing elections, and they will not go really far for their immediate political reasons. This, that's why I'm not totally optimistic. And the question, sorry for being long, to <laughs> our Dutch friends is that why, I was talking to a Dutch friend who was very much involved in the elections, he was an advisor of Zimmermans, and he told me, if you talk about enlargement today, during the campaign we didn't mention enlargement, because you talk about enlargement, it will destroy your chances to win elections. So uh, the question is why? Because we also remember 2015 when you had a referendum about Ukraine's association agreement. So why the public opinion is not ready at all? Why there's no discussion, more discussion about this? Okay, support is good, giving money is good, but this is not enough, clearly. Sorry for being long. I'll just do short and then give it to Florian. Uh, we have a very, we had very inward uh, politics the past year and also very inward elections. Uh, there was almost no talking about looking out. It was mostly about looking in, if that's my opinion. So that's why I now give it to Florian. <laughs> Good luck. Oh, I agree with you that I'd love to see more engagement from the Dutch people, of course. Um, the question how to establish that is something that we discussed a big deal already among ourselves and we will fight day and night in order to get more engagement going. Um, but so, yeah, the problem with the elections was indeed they were domestically based. Uh, this is a problem of populism. Uh, it's a big problem in the Netherlands as well. So that's our internal fight that we have to battle. And yeah, I, I think, but this is my personal opinion, Dutch people should read more, should acquaint themselves more with the world, should visit more places, and I'm not talking about going on holiday to, to the south of France or whatever, but engage themselves in a way that tests their moral capacities. You call European countries morally poor, and I think you've got a point there. But, and I do wish to, um, be optimistic. Uh, European Union is moving towards the east, um, which means that voices of countries that are based in the east will get louder, will become more prominent, will be listened to more. Um, so these countries will shape the future of Europe and the Netherlands will be pushed along. This is my promise. Whether it will come true, we'll see. But this is my promise.
Mm, see you in 10 years <laughs> to check it. Yeah, I had a question concerned uh, the previous topic about the culture as a soft language to explain uh, uh, to European community uh, Ukraine. And I wanted to ask um, the question about uh, what uh, you think as representatives uh, of culture, what do you think about the Council of Russian Culture, which is now popular amongst Ukrainian writers and uh, movie makers. And uh, I understand why it is popular amongst uh, Ukrainian uh, activists, because uh, in Russia, soft power is uh, already for decades uh, funded by government, and it is uh, uh, going in front of hard power. So soft power in Russia is a part of politics, uh, which is really, really funded all the history of Ukraine, which is published abroad, it is, uh, as uh, you, we just discussed, it is a uh, history of Ukraine written from the Russian perspective. We have like few authors, and uh, thanks God, now we have few authors who are still alive and who are still promoting and doing a lot for Ukraine. But in general, the biggest amount of all these books are uh, published by Russian uh, writers. So how to compete? And yes, this works, but we are competing in this war with a very strong power which uh, was on this field for, for centuries probably, not decades. <laughs> so how to compete in this and how to make this process faster? Because we have zero chances in this war if we will use only this soft cultural power. I, usually, I don't tend to see myself as a writer or writers or artists in general as very politically powerful. But um, uh, I think in this particular matter, we, as we sit here, can really be of some value. And people like us, not you, it's not dependent on the three or four of us, but people like us, we can can help uh, opening up um, and make it uh, not so much a, co a competition, but creating space, creating space in which Ukrainian culture can take its own place, uh, not by competing, because then you will probably lose, it becomes a battle, and then the strongest person wins. But by slowly, but steadily, just demanding space. And for example, uh, Florian, you uh, had uh, uh, plans for starting a Ukrainian uh, library uh, with, uh, uh, so maybe you can say something about that because that's really yeah i found that was a great idea we have a russian library and by a very good publisher in the netherlands and it would be wonderful and not to compete with that not to attack it but just you know start something and just add to it add to it and don't compete don't fight but just pick your place that's my response and we can we can help people like us can help with that by creating and demanding the space. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's a responsibility. 
yeah, well, I think it's a total disgrace that classic Ukrainian authors have never been translated into Dutch. So again, we better get going. And I'm looking for Ukrainian translators who can translate Ukrainian literature to Dutch in order to get more original Ukrainian voices in the Netherlands. Again, soft power. Again, it might go slowly, but at least we're doing something. And all, and all, the, all those things help to put Ukraine on the map, to make more people acquainted with Ukraine. And that will drown out the powerful Russian propaganda that's also very, very prevalent in the Netherlands. It's a fight. I mean, we might not like it, but it's a fight, also on the cultural front. But I think fighting the propaganda, um, we all have to do that. And, and also your foreign service of, um, and I think also the Dutch and everybody has to help in that. Because, and, and uh, I don't know, because I noticed there's something like Radio Free Europe here again, not? Or <coughs> do you have? Did it always exist or was it closed for a while and reopened now? Because I think Radio Free Europe. It's always here, yeah. yeah. Since the late Soviet Union, it's always here. Okay, it's always been. Yeah, because, well, I think uh, Germany especially is a country that is very much uh, focus of, of Russian propaganda and Netherlands also, and they're very effective and on a very simplistic way. And yeah, I think you have to do everything as a state to undermine that, to, to tell the truth. Uh, and, and then I think art is even too slow. So I, I think... Uh, you, you need also something else. But what, is your, what do you think? How do you think you have to fight this? That's a question to you. How do we have to fight the Russian propaganda? I'm a moderator here. No, 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 <laughs> but I... Uh, <laughs> no, I think, I think that, that there are several things, if you ask me. First, we need to understand that propaganda is not about disinformation. I hate this word. I think it's very wrong because it, it leads us to thinking that the goal of the Russian propaganda is to deceive you. No, it's not. It's the goal of any propaganda is to destroy you. And it's a different thing. So the, the concepts of informational warfare, information aggression that we Ukrainians actually introduced several years ago, saying that pay attention to, to the way how information is used as a weapon to demoralize you, to prove that you don't exist, to prove that you don't have a moral right to exist because you're a Nazi, or to prove that Europe will collapse, Ukraine is a failed state, all these narratives are there. And unfortunately, they go into the, the, the way of thinking that Europeans enjoy, which is a critical thinking, which is to say, yeah, probably our government is bad, probably Europe is not that good because we are critical thinkers, and Russia is coming, yeah, we will, in, we will invest even more into your critical thinking. Because the slogan of Russia today is question more. Well, nice slogan, right? And the slogan of Sputnik is telling the untold why. Amazing. And people in Europe say, okay, these guys are uh, revealing us the hidden truth. Well, no. They want to destroy you and they will show only those pieces of information that actually will demoralize you, that will make you weak, that you make you not believe in yourself. And I think the first thing we need to think is to understand how it is going, 
how, what is the goal behind it? Not just to deceive, but really to demoralize you. As soon as we understand it, I think we, 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 we start having a good starting point. But the problem is that the whole discourse is about disinformation and how to uh, debunk fake news, which is a very important thing, but it's not enough. I'm taking too much time. So, last question, and uh, we go to some informal talk as well. My name is Arno Kleibruck. I represent uh, the foundation Deleu Kiev. Um, it's actually not so much a question, it's a hope. Uh, behind you, you have explaining Ukraine as a slogan. I very much hope that you as writers, as people will media people to a certain extent that you will, when you come back to Holland, uh, that you will actually will bring or share what you have experienced apparently today. And I don't know what else is part of your visit to Ukraine, but that you actually share all this with your fellow media people, writing, writer colleagues, because it's, yeah, it has been said several times that it's very difficult to, to get the message across to make the people in Holland we are talking about now to make them less, uh, make them more engaged and less passive. Uh, but I think it is also very, if you want to say it like it, simple that everything is fed through various media, which well you represent one part. And it's a, well, you have a very important job and obviously you realize that because you are here, you personally, but it, it goes for all, for all the press. At the moment, it seems that they're not really in Holland, everybody's now, most of them are looking very much to, to Israel, what's happening there. And I think Holland was much more engaged like one year ago, or even less than one year ago, when the media was looking mostly to Ukraine. And so I, I very much hope that, well, your visit will be, maybe a, will help a little of getting your colleagues back <laughs> on track, if you want, and to, to, well, to keep them, to get Ukraine more in the focus again. So I hope actually that you'll have maybe meetings like we're having here now, each of you with four other colleagues, and then <laughs> that the snowball will go, go on, will roll. Yeah, and I think it's like an olifleck. We say it in Dutch. It's like an uh, uh, oh, yeah. oil stain on water, an ink spot on a, on normal. Thank you, Janus. Thank you, thank you for bringing this uh, light uh, to our chiaroscuro place. Um, and thank you very much for this conversation. I think it was really, really deep. And we recorded it, so if you don't mind, we will publish it as our podcast under the title Explaining Ukraine, we have on Ukraine world. So, Florian, Manon, Yap, and Lisa, thank you so much. And thank you for the, for the audience for coming. This was a podcast explaining Ukraine by Ukraine World, a multilingual website about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolonko. I am a Ukrainian philosopher, chief editor of Ukraine World and president of Pen Ukraine. This was our series, Thinking in Dark Times. Let me remind you that Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media angels. Let me also remind you that you can support our work at patreon.com slash Ukraine World. We provide exclusive content for our patrons. You can also support our volunteer trips to the front lines at PayPal, ukraine.resisting.gmail.com. You can find these links in the description of this episode. 
Stay with us and stand with Ukraine. Thank you.